2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're reading from the verse number 1. Therefore, seeing we have received this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God, in whom the. <coughs> And whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are all we delivered unto death for Jesus' sake that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. We having the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sakes that the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Amen. We know that God will add his own blessing to the reading of his inspired and infallible word. Amen. Thank you, Mr. McIntyre. We'll come to the announcements now, and I want to just give you all a, a warm word of welcome. It's good to see you along this evening, and we just pray the Lord will bless you. And if you're visiting with us this evening, you're very welcome. Uh, it's good to see uh, David and Joy Patterson with us, and must be the extended family. And it's nice to see Rachel and her husband and the wee girl. So you're very welcome. Uh, with good memories of Rachel's time in youth fellowship, and that's a while ago, but not that long ago. Uh, so it's good to have them. And any other visitors that are here, or if you're visiting or joining us online uh, and tuning in tonight, it's good to have you with us. We want to welcome you in the Saviour's name, and we just pray the Lord will bless you. Uh, tonight. And, uh, I suppose I'd have to welcome the Reverend McIntyre. It was funny welcoming him to his own pulpit, um, but he wasn't supposed to be here, but I'm very glad he is here, let me tell you that, because if he hadn't been here, I'd say you'd be out in the next 10 minutes, because uh, some of the rest of us creators would have had to pick up the baton and do something this evening. So it's good to have him here, and we pray the Lord will bless him uh, this evening. Uh, do remember the, uh, just the midweek 
prayer meeting and Bible study this week. Uh, just the one meeting with all of the other meetings now uh, finished for the year. Uh, so do remember that. Come along. I'll uh, take that meeting this week. And then next Lord's Day, we're really looking forward to this. Uh, God willing, we have our Christmas services on Christmas Eve. And in the morning, the Sunday school will be singing. And in the evening, other folks will be taking part. Um, and then there'll be a, a festive supper after the evening service. And the Reverend McIntyre, God willing, will be here to bring God's words. So we're looking forward to that uh, meeting. And uh, you pray about it and come along. Maybe you know someone who, uh, who maybe doesn't normally go to church and they'd like to go to church around Christmas time, well, ask them along and let's see the house uh, well filled next Lord's Day evening. And do remember the prayer requests. Uh, they were sent out, of course, on the WhatsApp. So do remember those, those who are in hospital. I do remember particularly our brother Andrew McMullen. Andrew's been in the hospital uh, just since Friday, uh, Thursday night, Friday. Uh, so do remember him, please, in your prayers at this time and others as well who are unwell uh, and just just do remember them please before the, uh, the Lord in prayer we're going to come to our next carol it's the number 82 the number 82 in the book is on the page 208 while shepherds watched their flocks by night all seated on the ground the angel of the Lord came down and glory shone around let's stand please and we'll sing together once we get uh, the introduction Stand, please.
Let's turn in the Word of God to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, please, once again. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We just finished Sunday lunch, and uh, Jonathan sent me a message that he hadn't been feeling very well, and uh, had come on very quickly, and he wouldn't be able to, to preach. And, um, and the, the comment was made around the dinner time, well, sure, you always have, you always have a sermon there, like, you know, you'll have, you'll have something to say. And, um, and well, my reply back was, well, I've got to be 30 years of them. But life's just not as simple as that. I remember uh, a few years ago, and it is quite a number of years ago, we had an annual general meeting, and there was a, a minister who was due to come, a very humorous minister, one of our senior ministers, he was due to come that night, and uh, he didn't turn up. And I waited and waited and, and started the meeting and went through the preliminaries, and he just wasn't there. And I had to, had to say something. And the Lord, the Lord gave help that night. Then the next morning he rang, and, and he said, I just looked at my diary. I was supposed to be with you last night. And I said, yes, you were. And uh, he says, well, he says, it's always useful to have one in the hip pocket. And whenever I took that bit of a splutter there, and I uh, hope my voice holds out, I hope you have one in your hip pocket. <laughs> but nevertheless, um, I, I was, over the course of this week, um, some thoughts were coming to my mind on the face of Jesus Christ here from First Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, and we, we have been thinking about Moses. We thought about Moses last Sunday morning, the prophet who knew God face to face, and then at the prayer meeting, we did think about the, how did Moses know God face to face, and how can we know God face to face, and we did make reference to this text here, and it is just these words in Second Corinthians chapter 4, and the verse 6, the face of Jesus Christ, and that's what I would like us to look at this evening, the face of Jesus Christ. So let's seek the Lord for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this meeting. We thank you for Brother Neville leading the service. We thank you for everyone that has assembled and for those that have joined us on the live stream, and we pray for this word that it would be a blessing to each and every heart. We thank you for Brother Jonathan Unwell that you would touch him and raise him back to his health and strength. Lord, be with us now. May the grace of God lead us and guide us in the Savior's name. Amen. Amen. Jochebed, she recognized that her son Moses, according to Stephen's great sermon in the Acts, she recognized that he was a goodly child. And that means that he was fair to God. She looked at him and she saw a spiritual significance in this boy that was born in such a perilous time when Pharaoh was threatening the total extinction of the Hebrew people. I wonder what did Mary see as she cradled the newborn child in her arms in that stable? As she looked upon his little face, and she was the first one to, to see him. And as she, he was wrapped in those swaddling bands, and as she looked into his eyes, what did she see? What thoughts filled her heart as she looked at that little baby? 
Her mind was full of memories. The last months had been absolute turmoil for her and for Joseph. There was a threat upon their future marriage, as Joseph was minded to put her away until the angel came to him in the dream. And then there was the visit that she had already received from Gabriel. The holy thing that shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. With God, nothing is impossible. There was the visit with Elizabeth, who was about to give birth to John the Baptist, and how her babe leapt within her womb at the very mention that the Lord was coming, and that he already had been conceived in the womb of Mary. All of this was filling her mind as she looked upon the face of Jesus. And of course, they did call him by that name that they were instructed to call him, Jesus Savior. He's the Savior. But there was so much that she didn't really understand or comprehend as she looked into that tender face. And then the shepherds, she, they interrupted the silence of the, the whole evening, coming down from the hills and being filled with such joy and happiness. Their stories of the angels bursting into songs, peace on earth, goodwill to all men. And they made their way to the temple for the child to be circumcised. And as they made their way to the temple, there was old Simeon taking the child up in his arms and talking about the the light to lighten the Gentiles, the glory of thy people Israel. I can depart in peace now. Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. And of course, his name was Savior. And she looked upon that child that they were bringing to the temple. Her mind was filled with many things. Anna, the aged lady who departed not from the temple, she served God with fastings and prayers day and night. She too was so excited to see this child. And then, a little later, the child could have been as old as perhaps two, but it certainly didn't take place around the time that the Lord was born, as all the nativity stories seem to show. The wise men, they came from the east, and they worshipped him with those gifts, bringing him gifts fit for a king. And all the while, Mary, as any mother did, but her eyes fastened upon that child. That child, that special child born of her. She saw the face of, of Jesus Christ. But we too, we see the face of Jesus Christ. Not in that literal, physical way that, that Mary saw, but we see the face of Christ. And we see the face of Christ revealed through the Scriptures. And this is what I want us to meditate upon and see what we can learn because there's something so significant about his face. We are told here in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines into our hearts, that light that comes from the very face of Jesus Christ. That light shines in our face. The light that comes from his face. It's a remarkable thought. 
the same miracle that takes place whenever that took place whenever the, the heavens and the earth were created. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And that's the very same thing that happens to our hearts. The light of God, it comes. It comes from the face of Christ. So let us just think about the face of Jesus Christ tonight, what the face of Christ is. First of all, the face of Jesus Christ is the, the face of God the face of God. As Mary looked upon that child, she was looking upon God. In John chapter 1 and the verse 14, it's an often quoted verse. It's undoubtedly one of the, the great texts of Scripture with regard to the Incarnation. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, the second person of the Trinity, the Logos. He was made flesh, and he dwelt among us. And they saw his glory. The disciples, they saw his glory. And in Colossians 2, verse 9, we are told that in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So when this child... She saw the Word that was made flesh, and all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in this child. As the fullness of the Godhead dwelt within him throughout his entire earthly ministry. And of course, the fullness of the Godhead still abides in the man Christ Jesus, in his glorified humanity, as he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. In Acts chapter 4 in the verse 30, we have the rather curious reference to him being the holy child, Jesus. The holy child, Jesus. The things that were done by him were done by the holy child, Jesus. Reference to the fact that he was the son of God, the holy child, Jesus. He was also the son of man. He became man. And he was God in his purity and in his perfection. The holy child, Jesus. The face of God. We are given two descriptions in the Scriptures of Jesus' face. Now, we don't get these descriptions in the gospel record. The gospel narrative doesn't tell us exactly what he looked like as he walked the dusty roads of Galilee and Judea, walked the streets of Jerusalem went into the courts of the temple to preach. We're not given a, an artistic account of his face. But there are two accounts of his face in the Scriptures which are symbolic but yet powerful and deeply personal. One of them is in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5. And over in the, the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, we have a poetic account of the, the face of the the one who is the, the beloved. And in the verses 10 and 11, well, well let's just take it from, from verse 9. For the bride is asked a question, what is thy beloved more than another beloved? O thou fairest among women. What is thy beloved more than another beloved that thou dost so charge us? 
What's so special about your lover? Why is, why do you love him so much? Then she goes on to say in the verse 10, my beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. Of course, the bride here is a picture of the church, and the groom is a picture of Christ. She talks about what he looks like. He's white. That speaks of his purity, his holiness, and he's ruddy. It's the word from which we get the name Adam that means red earth. It's very interesting. David was described as being ruddy as well. It's a description of one's handsome nature in one way, but it's also a description of humanity in another. And then, of course, that all speaks of Christ. The one who is pure, holy, harmless, set apart from sinners. He's also made bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He's the chiefest among 10,000. He's the, the tallest. That's what it really means. If you were to see 10,000 people, there's one head and shoulders above the rest. That's Christ. Of all of the millions that have ever lived in this world, billions even, Christ's life stands out. We're in the Christmas season, and for many people it's, it's a purely pagan or secular event. A custom and a culture. But there came a time in the history of the world when an old pagan feast was Christianized. And that was because the Christian gospel made such an impact upon the world. And we can't ignore it. It did. Because Christ is the chiefest among 10,000. The very dates of our calendar, B.C., A.D., recognize this. Christ is the chiefest among 10,000. He is that one figure in world history that stands out. His head is as the most fine gold. Gold, again, speaks of purity. His head of gold. You think of his face. And the face, of course, is part of the head. And here you have Christ in purity of his head. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. Speaks of youth. Speaks of youth. You know what happens with age. The gray hairs appear. But Christ's head is as black as a raven. Forever young. He dies a young man, 33 years of age. He is forever young. The onset of age never afflicted him. You come to his eyes in verse 12. These are all part of his face. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. The dove, again, speaks of peace and speaks of hope. Picture of the dove in Scripture. Milk speaks of purity. Think of his eyes. We'll come to look at his eyes just a little later. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers, his lips like lilies dropping sweet smelling myrrh. That's how she described his face. It's a ravishing picture. And then if you come with me over to the book of Revelation chapter 1, we have another picture of the, the face of Jesus towards the, the end of Scriptures. It's not the last reference to the face of Christ in Scripture. I suppose it's one of the last. 
and it's a passage that can be compared and contrasted with what the bride saw in the Song of Solomon. Revelation chapter 1. John, he sees the Savior. In verse 14, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. That's all we see of his face in this particular picture. And his head is not black here. The picture of eternal youth is hair is white. That's a picture of eternity. Picture of the ancient of days that appears in Daniel's great prophecy, the judge of all the earth. It's a picture of purity and eternity. And his eyes there is a flame of fire. So the eyes are not washed with milk and fitly set here. They are burning eyes that see all things, omniscient eyes, one from whom nothing is hid. And whenever Mary, she looked into the face of Jesus, she didn't see all of this. She didn't see what the the bride saw in the Song of Solomon. This was only a child. She didn't see what John would later say. But she saw something deeply special. She was looking into the one who is and forever will be the Son of God. Whenever the disciples later saw him in the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17 and 2, we're told that his face did shine as the sun. And suddenly his glory was revealed for that moment upon that mount, who he really was. But for Mary, he was her newborn son who will fulfill a great a remarkable purpose. It was the face of God. Secondly, in relation to the face of Jesus Christ, it was the face of humility. Face of humility. We are told that there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. He was born just like any other child. Of course, he was not conceived in the ordinary way. His conception was extraordinary, supernatural. But even so, he was born of a woman. And we are told in Philippians chapter 2, concerning our Savior, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. He was made in the likeness of man. And this was his humility. The Son of God, who was engaged in the creation of the heavens and the earth. Without him was anything made that was made. And yet here he is, being held in the arms of a mother, feeding upon her milk. I know that the, the, the carol says, no crying he makes. Is it a sin for a child to cry when the child needs fed and it's telling you what it needs? No, it's not. He was like any other child. He didn't have the tantrums, of course. He didn't have the the stubborn nature that we all are born with, but he still was a a child. He was made in the likeness of men. He he humbled himself. The word humbled there in the King James Version is the Greek word kenosis. The Greek word kenosis literally means he emptied himself. Of course, he did not empty himself of his Godhead. He could not do that. 
He was and forever will be essentially God. But yet, Paul deliberately used that word kenosis to outline the gravity of what our Savior did whenever he would forever become man. Forever he became man. Humiliated man, first of all, and then glorified man, but he is forever man. When that happened, whenever the miracle of the incarnation occurred, a greater act of humility has never taken place in the entire history of mankind, nor ever it will, that God could become man. The humility, how he was born of that woman. He was humbled in that he did become man. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about the children being born of flesh and blood, and then he likewise himself took part of the same. He became real man. He became a real child. He was subject to the law. Paul talks about him being born of a woman made under the law. He was the, the judge, the great arbiter, the one that fashioned the law, and yet he became subject to that law. He was humbled and that he came to serve. He was the king who stooped to be the servant. He took upon him the form of a servant, Paul wrote. And that's very evident, isn't it, whenever you read the gospel record? In Mark chapter 10, we are told that the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister to give his life a ransom for many. He came to be the minister, to be the servant. And in being the servant, he would give his life, totally pour out his life for us. He was the servant. There is that particular anecdote in the life of our Lord whenever he stooped down to wash the feet of the disciples. And Peter thought it a strange thing that the Lord should wash their feet. And of course, he was teaching them about the value of service, how he humbled himself to do that very thing. And the Lord is still our servant, that he prays for us. He never ceases to pray for us. He has us continually upon his heart. And whilst that great work of redemption is complete in terms of the price paid, which is why he said it is finished, nevertheless, he is still at the Father's side, being touched with the very feelings of our infirmity, being touched by our fears and experiencing what we experience. And yet without sin, he is the one that is always faithful, who never ceases to do his great work. He humbled himself through his poverty. Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 6, he said, Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. The riches of Christ. How rich is Christ? How rich is Christ? He talked about the glory that he had before the world was. It is not that he was bereft of that glory. That glory still appeared in flashes and brilliance whenever he was upon this world as he performed those mighty miracles. But yet he chose to hide that glory under that veil of humility 
under that veil of poverty. He was so rich, and yet for our sakes he became poor. He was the king who became the servant, who lived this life in the eyes of many, just a peasant. That's all he appeared to be. Mild he lays his glory by, Wesley wrote, born that man no more may die. You think of all of his poverty, and there was no poverty greater than the poverty he felt at the cross. Whenever he bore the guilt of our sin, the weight of our sin, he experienced our spiritual bankruptcy there on Calvary as he paid the debt that we could not pay in order that we might be made rich, in order that we might have riches in heaven, in order that we might have something that a thief can't steal or that inflation can't erode or that a stock market crash can't destroy, that we might be rich forever. And he experienced all of that poverty just for us. He became humbled. He humbled himself through his mortality. Christ's final and greatest act of being made of no reputation was in the death he died. You, know, you think of the words that Paul wrote in Philippians 2. He had no reputation. He became one with no reputation. And we'll do anything for a reputation. Do people say good of us? And yet, he chose to die the death of the cross, a death that was reserved for the, the scum of society, a death that was reserved for the, the lowest of all criminals, a death that a free man of the Roman Empire could not die. It was a horrible, awful death. And yet he chose to die the death of the cross. And here he was, he emptied himself. And that phrase, he emptied himself, makes perfect sense when you, you see him giving his body and soul on that cross for you and I. He surrendered all. He held nothing back. The face of Jesus Christ, that's what we see in the face of Christ. We see not only the face of God, but we see the face of humility. There's one final thought I just want to bring before you. It's the face of grace. The face of grace. Mary looked into his eyes. She whispered the name, Jesus, Savior. Who else looked into those eyes? Actually, whenever you look through the gospel record, we read more about the eyes of Christ than any other part, really, of his body. Because we read about the people that Jesus saw. And if he saw these people, then they saw him. And whenever you look at someone, you look into their eyes. And someone's eyes tells you an awful lot about them. You can see pity in eyes. You can see compassion in eyes. You can see love in eyes. You can also see a hardness. You can see a bitterness. You can see a hatred. You can tell a lot by looking into someone's eyes. Mary was the first to look upon those eyes. Joseph, he looked in those eyes too. The Lord was described in Mark 6 verse 3 as a carpenter. 
It means he learned to work. He learned to use tools. He grafted there in Joseph's workshop. And although he didn't have to be taught, he surrendered himself so that he chose to be taught because he humbled himself. And as he worked those tools, Joseph looked upon the eyes of that obedient young man who behaved and acted as his son, even though he wasn't the son of Joseph. He gave Joseph the place as the head of that family. And he worked there by his side, learning that trade. Joseph saw obedience in those eyes. You think of the people that Jesus helped. The people that saw him as that first person in a moment of great pressure and stress and anguish. The blind people, he was the first person they saw. Bartimaeus, the others that were blind. The Lord touched their eyes. The first person they saw was Jesus. The one who healed them. You think of the son of the widow of Nain, or Jairus' daughter, or Lazarus that came out of the grave, the first people that they saw after death was Jesus. Of a little girl, 12 years of age, lying there upon that bed. She was that little corpse. Her parents were devastated. A funeral was being prepared, and then suddenly, the Lord, he went and he touched her. Talitha kumai, damsel, I say unto you, arise. And she opened her eyes, and she saw Jesus. She looked into the face of Jesus. Whenever you think of the eyes of Jesus, you think of the tears that came from those eyes. Jesus wept. He wept. He chose to weep. He groaned in his spirit as he came to the tomb of Lazarus. He knew he was about to raise Lazarus from the grave, and yet he chose to have that empathy and sympathy with those sisters whom he loved so dearly. And although he had permitted Lazarus to die for a great purpose, nevertheless, he still was troubled because he was coming face to face with the great enemy of all, which is death. And how death had afflicted this poor family. He was devastated in his spirit. He chose to be devastated. And Jesus wept. The tears that flowed from that face. And we see that sympathy in other places. He had sympathy for the people in Mark 6, 34. He saw the people as sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion upon them. And as he went about his business, he saw the people, he saw the crowds, and he felt for those people. He had a burden for them. He had a heart for them. Face of Jesus, the eyes of Jesus, seeing them, and not only seeing them as a crowd, but looking into every individual that was there. And so it is tonight. As the Lord looks at you in this meeting, or as he looks at you if you're at home on live stream, he sees you right where you're at with all of your needs, and he has compassion, more compassion than we will ever realize. I was struck with the words we have of him, how he related to an individual there in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, in the verse 14. And when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. 
There he came into this home. There was a family there. And he saw this woman. She was sick of a fever. And he saw that. He noticed that. And he touched her, and the fever left her. She received such strength, she was able to serve them, minister to them. But he saw her first of all. If he hadn't seen her, he wouldn't have helped her. The very fact that Jesus sees shows that he cares. And because he sees, he does more than see, but he reaches out and puts that compassion into action. That's how he works. That's our Savior. You think of the people who saw Jesus' eyes around the time he was crucified. That's another story completely. Pilate had him there before him. He said to the people, Behold the man. Whenever you look at what Pilate said and the circumstances that had happened before he said it, he had sent Jesus away to be beaten by the soldiers, to be flogged. And they brought him back, thinking that perhaps when the people saw the cruelty had already been inflicted, that would persuade them to let him go. Behold the man, he said. He looked into those eyes. He saw no hardness. He saw nothing but love. He saw nothing but innocence. He looked into that face. That face that had been beaten and bruised, and still he saw something he had never seen before. Something that he would never forget as long as he lived. You think of the soldiers who beat him. They had beat many a man, but they had never beaten a man like this man. Think of the soldiers that nailed his hands and his feet. They had done that gory task before, but they had never done it to a man who reacted as this man reacted. You think of Simon and Serene, whom they pulled out of the crowd and forced him to carry that cross up Calvary's hill. As the Lord walked on beside that cross, Simon looked round. No one was closer to the Lord just before his crucifixion than this man. And Simon's life was changed because he looked into the eyes of the Son of God who would take his sins and die for his sins. You think of the centurion who gave the orders for the soldiers to do their terrible deeds. And as he looked at the whole event, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. What do we do tonight? We've looked into the face of Jesus. How can you look into the face of Jesus and turn away from him, refuse him, how could you look into the eyes of Jesus? He loves you as much as he loved those multitudes all those years ago. He loves you as much as he loved Mary and Martha. He loves you. How can you look into those eyes? He was beaten for your sins. Look into those eyes as he was crucified for you. How can you turn away from him? Those eyes say, come. Come unto me and I will give you rest. The last mention of the face of Jesus in Scripture is Revelation chapter 22 and the verse 4. The people that are in glory, they shall see his face. That's all we need to know about heaven. Yes, we read about the, we read about the golden streets, and we read about the gates of pearl, and we read about all of that. But all we need to know about heaven is the fact that we'll see his face. And throughout eternity, we'll never lose sight of Jesus. That's what heaven will be like, just to see him. And yes, it is thrilling. Loved ones will be there, and 
people we loved here on earth will be there, and oh, that's great, and it's wonderful. And there'll be that union of people that make all of the lovely family times we've had on earth just pale away. But we'll all be joined together with Christ. And we will see his face. He's going to be at the heart of it all. But only those that know him will have this hope. Do you know him tonight? Have you seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Let's just pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Write it upon our hearts. Help us to know you and love you. And for those that don't know you, may there be a turning to Christ. For Jesus' sake, amen.